Hello, and welcome to the DC Insider Employer Update Podcast. This podcast updates you with the expertise and current insight of the Washington, D.C.-based attorneys from the Fortney Scott Law Firm. Each episode highlights the most important issues and analysis that employers need to know in order to understand and react to key federal developments affecting their business. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice on any subject matter. Now let's turn it over to our host, David Fortney. Hi, everybody. I'm David Fortney, and welcome to another edition of the DC Insider Employer Update Podcast. It's really great to have Consuela Pinto joining us today. Hey, Consuela, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Well, we're glad you're here, too. But we also have our special guest, Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliance and Outreach from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Rick, do you want to give a shout out? Well, shout out to you, David and Coatswella, for having me today. I'm so excited to be here and hopefully we'll have a really fun conversation about some really important issues uh, that we're challenged with in the business community in America. I agree. And it's really a privilege, Rick, to have you with us. Let me just give a very brief uh, sense as to... Uh, Rick's portfolio, which is very, very extensive with the U.S. Chamber. And with the Chamber, he is involved directly and very substantively in promoting awareness and implementation of a wide range of diversity, equity, and inclusion programs, which we're going to learn a lot more about today. And Rick brings to that position a wide range of experience, both uh, in the private sector as well as in the public sector. So he's been in the policy roles and is very effective in that special space that he's in now in helping lead the private sector business community in developing best practices. So, Rick, I just want to again say we're, we're really, really pleased to have you. Thank you so much. Just to have a brief set of context before we start our dialogue with Rick. Last year, the murder of George Floyd, as we all know, ignited protests around the country and really helped shine a light on racial inequality in the United States and around the globe. Since then, much of the focus has been on employers and what actions employers are taking to close the diversity gaps in their workforces. But as we all know, the employment arena is but one source, one area in which inequality needs to be addressed. In order to move the needle towards meaningful and lasting change, we need to broaden the discussion of effective DNI strategies beyond solely the employment-focused initiatives that we often talk about. So with that, Consuela, let's kind of turn in and unpack some of those initiatives with Rick. Sure, I'm happy to. Rick, thanks again for joining us. I'm really excited to have you here. I'm super excited to talk about DE&I beyond employment with you. Um, A growing area of my practice in the last year has been working with employers to really expand their DE&I programs, to think more creatively about them. And this is one of my most favorite areas to work in. And what I'm really excited about in terms of having you here is this gives me an opportunity to really broaden my knowledge of DE&I strategies outside of just the standard workplace approaches. Under your leadership, the chamber hosted a series of virtual events focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And most recently, they culminated in the National Summit on Equality of Opportunity. 
Along the way, the chamber issued a series of white papers, the most recent one being America's Opportunity Gaps by the Numbers. Through this initiative, the chamber explored opportunity gaps in four key areas. Employment was one, but you all also delved into education, entrepreneurship, and criminal justice. Why was it critical to the chamber to go beyond just DE&I in the workplace? Yeah, so that's a great question. And my approach and the way we're approaching this is look at, it, at these issues in a very holistic way. For example, you can't talk about employment without thinking about issues of inequality and education in our society. Uh, incidentally, we've actually added two more pillars since then around health and wealth, because all of these are determinants of, of equity, of the well-being of our communities. So when we think about diversity, equity, and inclusion, it's not just internal facing to a company, and that's important. And a lot of companies in America across the private sector have been engaged in this work for years because they understand the value proposition, the rationale, the reason for having a more diverse, inclusive, and equitable work environment. But we got to extend that work out into the community, out into society. For example, if you think about education, and we know that there are gaps in learning, say, between Black kids and, and white kids. We know that 60% of Black students in America attend high-poverty schools. But we also know that the workforce of the future will require kids to have skills and education and knowledge in math and reading where there are real gaps. So my logic is really simple, that if we work to close those gaps today, we'll have a better, more prepared workforce of the future. So the way we're looking at this is in a holistic way, we gotta address these issues in education, entrepreneurship, even in criminal justice. Those folks who are formerly incarcerated, they transition back into society. How do they become a part of the economic mainstream and become a part of the workforce, which we need workers? We talk about today, Consuela, there are what, millions, nine million jobs that are unfilled, people without jobs and jobs without people. So we got to find every source, every pipeline that we can find to help strengthen our economy by thinking about the workers, the training, the skills, the ability to be, again, productive citizens of our society and also employees of our companies and contributing to our economy. Totally agree. And I think there's some ways where employers can fall back on some of what they know in order to engage in these other areas. So for example, with education, I've worked with a few clients who have realized there's a real skill gap out there in terms of what they need. And this is primarily in the tech industry. And a number of them have decided, well, maybe we just need to go out and develop people with these skills. So they're going out and they're building relationships with highly diverse schools where they're getting a real cross section of the community. They're getting in there and they're developing girls who code programs. They're creating mentoring programs where they're helping these kids get through their math and their science and their English classes. And while that's not a quick payback, I think employers can really do a lot within the DE&I space out in the community if they're willing to play the long game versus the very quick, I'm just going to bring in people right now and my workforce will be perfectly balanced right now. 
Um, and I think a lot of these programs could also translate into working with formerly incarcerated adults and helping them develop the skills they need to move back into the workforce. Well, you're absolutely right. And that's the good news. We talk about best practices. There's a lot of best practices that have already been underway in the private sector. You know, I was just in a, a PBS series, The American Graduate, taking a look behind the scenes of who are these high school students? And one of the companies that was a part of that was IBM and what they call their P-TECH program. And it's about exposing these urban and other kids from diverse communities to a science, technology, and engineering, and math. And the good news is that the private sector hasn't been investing, and we're seeing an increased investment in these kinds of domains across the country. Because again, I think the return may not be immediate, but long-term, the return certainly will be there. Because again, these are the workers of the future, future innovators and entrepreneurs. So it just makes sense that we're talking about a holistic approach to strengthening and, and maintaining our economic competitiveness that we make the short-term investments now for the long-term value in the future. So employers are really feeling a, a sense of urgency. Right now, it's all about transparency and being able to post data and show progress and be able to say very quickly, look, my workforce mirrors the community that uh, we operate in, mirrors the communities we recruit from. It's a big investment for employers to think about this long game and reaching out into areas of the community where they're not necessarily going to get that immediate return on investment. So what's the business case for employers to think outside the box? Well, listen, and there is a business case. I think we oftentimes think we think of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and equality of opportunities, which is what we call our initiative at the chamber. We understand it's the right thing to do. There's a moral imperative, but there really is a business case. You, know, you look at research by McKinsey and Deloitte and others who all pointed to the fact that organizations, companies that are more diverse, inclusive, and equitable are simply more profitable. And that should matter. I mean, this is about the bottom line. Research shows, for example, a strong correlation between diversity and industry leadership and quarterly earnings. For every 10% increase in racial and ethnic diversity on a company's senior executive team, Consuela, earnings before interest and taxes rise 0.8%. That is a real, really important factor when you think about the bottom line, the profitability of the companies. I mean, what's more, there's some research shows that, that companies in the top quartile of ethnic and racial diversity on the executive teams are 33% more likely to have industry-leading profitability. And I think we all agree that we don't need a research to tell us that greater diversity just leads to healthier work environments where people feel included, they perform when they're uh, diverse, they're more innovative, you can communicate more effectively with your consumers. And so all of this just matters. On the, I guess, the more societal side of this, you know, we have a partnership with the W.K. Kellogg Foundation around some of their groundbreaking research in a report called The Business Case for Racial Equity. And the thesis is really simple, but very, very, very impactful. And what they found, Consuela, is that if we address what we call the inequalities in education and housing and criminal justice and all of these public policy domains, that our GDP grows by $8 trillion. We can debate, is it $8 trillion, $6 trillion, $9 trillion, but the case that we're making is a business and economic case 
in addition to what we know is a moral imperative. So that's what the data in the research shows. And that's what we're leading on. And I work at the U.S. Chamber It's rooted in data, It's rooted in helping companies and the private sector and America understand the real economic value. The pie grows and more people can have an opportunity to have a slice of that pie. You know what you didn't mention in that is, and that was a very passionate response and I loved it and I've taken a lot of it down. But one thing you didn't mention is government mandated legal requirements, the risk of liability. And, you know, as a lawyer, that's what I'm always thinking about. And that's what I'm always talking to clients about. But I'm getting the sense that if we really want to see what I refer to as meaningful and lasting change across industries, across sectors, that change has to be more organic. Employers have to kind of develop their own areas of interest and their own strategies. And yes, um, you know, the legal part is absolutely critically important in terms of how they implement those strategies, but it's really not government intervention that's driving this. Would you agree? Well, that certainly is my thesis and my theory and approach that I'm leading at the chamber. Once we again help companies and help the private sector understand the business case and economic case, it does become organic. You know, I, interestingly enough, I've testified three times on Capitol Hill. Uh, one, of, one of them most recently was before a subcommittee of the Financial Services Committee of the House of Representatives on mandating reporting and data. And, you know, the reality is we know that what gets measured gets done, but we don't think that regulations and mandates and more laws is the answer. Let's do it organically. And what we find that companies are starting to report. And we need to do this in an approach that one size also doesn't fit all. I mean, what, you know, successes in where I grew up in rural South Carolina probably be vastly different than successes in New York State. So it's not a one size fit all. And I, I'm really proud of and pleased that the work, the progress that we're seeing in the private sector. We're not going to solve this overnight and challenges that existed for hundreds of years, but there's progress. And the more that we can share those success stories, the best practices, uh, make it organic. And again, as companies start seeing the value uh, economic to their bottom line into America, I think we'll see even more progress. And we are. I think that's a great point on. You know, these issues didn't develop overnight. You know, racial inequality isn't something that is new. These are issues that have been bubbling up for centuries, right? And the answers are to this are hard. And employers need to kind of take a, a breath and really think about what works in their workforce for their industry and where they are in terms of their, as I call it, their DE&I journey. But I want to switch gears just a little bit, and I want to talk about small employers, because that's a group that's really struggling right now, particularly small businesses that are owned by members of a minority community. And they've been hit hard by COVID. They're struggling to come back. Where do they fit in into this movement for greater diversity across the board in terms of their communities, but also in their workforce? What can they be thinking about that they can be doing that's realistic for them? Well, they play a 
very, very important role in all of this. Uh, you know, we often, again, we think about diversity and equity inclusion and workforce, but we also have to think about the role of small businesses. And you know, as well as I know, in your audience, that they, these are the net job creators in our country. I always tell the story when I grew up in rural South Carolina, of uh, this area of, of Lancaster, South Carolina, which used to be a textile town, but there was a very thriving, what I call the sort of Black Wall Street of Lancaster. These, but these were where there were businesses and entrepreneurs, but they weren't just businesses and entrepreneurs and job creators. They were important parts of the fabric of the society and they were the anchors. And so that fabric part is extremely important. Sadly, small businesses across America have been hit hard, obviously by the pandemic, the good news, we're starting to come back. But minority owned companies, according to the data have been uh, hit hard in a very disproportionate way. There are 8 million minority owned firms in America, 2.6 million of them black owned businesses. The Institute for Economic Research uh, shows that 45% of black owned businesses have already closed. That is a challenge and that, that is something that we got to correct for. So getting these businesses back up and running, we're working very diligently in the private sector through the Chamber, our Equality of Opportunity Initiative, in determining how we can get them more connected to corporate supply chains. We hear the term supplier diversity. Well, we think that's something that we can lead in the private sector side to help get them opportunities to do business with corporations. Uh, not to mention the importance of government contracting opportunities. How do we think about access to capital, which still is the number one challenge facing uh, businesses of color? Getting access, not just to traditional lending devices like loans, but how do we think about private equity? How do we think about these other means of capital flowing? How do we think about new joint ventures, right? Uh, and so we're leading a lot of those conversations across the country so that we can get all of our small businesses particularly those minority firms that have been disproportionately affected by the pandemic, to getting the doors open again, to create jobs and be those anchors and strengthen the social organizational structure of our communities. Absolutely, that sounds fabulous. So there's one other topic I wanted to hit on with you, and this goes back to something that we touched on um, in our conversations leading up to today's podcast. We were talking a bit about kind of the fine line that employers walk between diversity and discrimination and always trying to stay on the side of diversity where it is about creating opportunities. It's not about set-asides or quotas. And you made an interesting point about diversity becoming a political football and how we need to change the conversation around DE&I. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because I think it's really important for employers to be thinking about how they talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, because what they say matters and the words they use are important in terms of letting their workforce know what is this really about. And it's not about advancing one group over another. It's about creating greater equality across the company. Well, I think you're absolutely right. And we have to be careful about that. And I'm very clear uh, when I talk about this issue again, that we talk about it's a win-win. It's a business case, an economic case that the pie grows. It's not a zero-sum game. It's not a taking from Peter to pay Paul or, or Mary to pay Margaret. I mean, you know, it's about how do you expand the pie and, and bring more people uh, at the table? Because the pie is big enough. 
And what we do know, again, the more diverse and more people we bring to the table, the more opportunity for you to grow the pie. And that's the way I choose to approach this from a total business and economic case. And it is unfortunate that these conversations in some instances become relegated to becoming political footballs and people use a conversation around diversity and equity and inclusion, sometimes in ways that are not beneficial or that do not help to advance the business and economic case. So again, our work at the chamber is very strategic. It's rooted in data, it's rooted in the value proposition, again, that there's an economic proposition that we all can benefit from as not just companies, but as a society, as also as a world. Because, you know, 95% of the world's consumers are outside the United States. So as we think about the role of Latino-owned businesses and Asian-owned businesses and Black-owned businesses connect to consumers around the world, there's a lot of research that shows that there, there quite frankly, is a, a sort of an affinity there that we really haven't tapped into to get these minority businesses exporting and selling their products around the world, even though there is familiar ties to communities around the world. So that's another part of the work that I'm leaning on. And again, but it's all about how do we create more economic opportunity and success uh, for all of society, not just one group. That's really a great way to put it. And I think I'm going to use that, if you don't mind, <laughs> when I'm working with my clients on their messaging to get them to sort of think about this in a broader way. Well, Rick, this was fabulous. I learned a lot. Thank you so much for joining us. But before I let you go, one last question. Is there anything else you want to let the audience know about the Chambers program, your final thoughts on DE&I? What advice do you have? You said a word earlier, which I think just holds true for where we are today in America, where we've been, and I think the opportunities for our future. It is a journey. And we have to look at it that, but what I do know is that the more people we have on this journey with the shared understanding and a shared purpose and a shared mission, the more likely we're gonna succeed. So I hope that all of your listeners, uh, I know that we're on this journey together, uh, you and Dave, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. And I hope that these conversations, and conversations are important, that we make the case and that more people will travel this road with us so that everybody in America can just have a fair shot to live out their own American dream. At the end of the day, that's what this is about. That's the perfect way to end. I mean, this has really been a remarkable conversation and it helps contextualize the legal guardrails that we worry about and the broader context in which those issues are addressed, successfully addressed, and the best practices that, Rick, you've highlighted I also want to give a shout out because Rick has a lot of materials on the Chamber's website, and I want to make sure that everyone has the benefit of those materials. You don't need to be a Chamber member, although I'm sure Rick would encourage you to become a Chamber member if you're not, but you don't need to become one. Uh, the Chamber is very generous as part of their outreach and sharing of materials. So if you visit uschamber.com slash equality of opportunity, again, uschamber.com slash equality of opportunity. And that's a whole separate page. And there's just a great collection of materials, reports, and it's robust and it's growing rapidly. So don't just go there once, go there multiple times. And you really will see some of the materials that Rick has, has already referred to in the discussion today. 
uh, and see Rick in some meetings with the CEO series that you've started that I think is very interesting and would commend to others. So again, certainly from our perspective, this has been fantastic and it really does help, like I say, put the context, the employment law and affirmative action and non-discrimination, so many of our clients are federal contractors, those are important components, but it's just one big tile in this larger picture. I call it the mosaic. And, and I think it does help contextualize so much of what our clients and so many employers are doing. So fabulous discussion, Rick. I really want to thank you again for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. And Consuelo, as always, thank you. It's really a super discussion. So in our next podcast, we are going to shift a little bit and we're going to talk uh, with Commissioner Keith Sonderling from the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. We're going to talk about EEO and compliance issues from his perspective. And we're also going to focus on one of the another challenge that many employers are grappling with, which is artificial intelligence. So be sure and join us for that one. But in the meantime, please subscribe to the podcast, DC Insider Employer Update. And again, you get to hear great content like we had today. So super and thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks everyone. We look forward to the next update. For those that would like to connect with any of the lawyers from Fortney Scott, please reach out to them directly by visiting fortneyscott.com. On the website, you can also listen to previous podcast episodes, as well as pick up your copy of the DC Insider Report and sign up for future updates. Thanks so much for listening.